This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 25th. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Put in the Box podcast. My name is Paul Elliott. Uh, your name is Peter Elliott. And I am Paul Elliott. I've been trying to trick you. We're thinking of doing that for weeks now. My, well, name, is, my name is Peter Elliott, joined by my twin brother and co-host Paul Elliott. Uh, this is a podcast that comes once a week during the baseball season. We are located in Champaign, Illinois. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty well. That's actually kind of funny because a lot of people say like our voices are hard to distinguish, which actually presents a challenge for a podcast. So this is Peter speaking now. And this is Paul. If you listen in headphones, it's easier because I have it switched on the uh, the mixer. So, But I guess if you're in your car or listening on your iPhone with no headphones, it, it can be difficult. Like I said, we are located in Champaign, Illinois, and there's actually a couple... Uh, Champagne baseball-related uh, news stories this week. Do tell. Well, Tanner Rourke, former Illinois pitcher, oh, yes. uh, kicked off the team back in uh, 2007. But we uh, we don't remember that. We remember that he did pitch for Illinois for a couple seasons, and he struck out 15 in uh, seven innings for the Nationals uh, on Saturday. Uh, and then a current Illinois pitcher. Uh, potential first-round pick, he will get drafted um, in this next draft. Cody Sedlock threw 10 and two-third innings on a Friday night against Ohio State here in Champaign. Had 14 strikeouts in his 10 and two-thirds on uh, 132 pitches. Crazy. And uh, Keith Law, ESPN prospect guy, was hard on Illinois coach Dan Hartlib last year for using Tyler J as a closer instead of a starter. And uh, he also was uh, firing away on Friday night, uh, ripping into Hartlib for uh, throwing Sedlock uh, 132 pitches. Um, just a couple quotes from Hartlib after the game. He said, Keith Law wasn't here. Keith Law ripped me all last year. Keith Law has an opinion, but so do we. And then Sedlock, they asked him about it, and he said, that's what all the hours in the weight room and conditioning in the off-season in the winter, waking up at 6 a.m. three times a week, that's what that's for. I'm in the best shape of my life and built to go like that. So he had no problem throwing them in innings and pitching into the 11th inning. Illinois did win that game, won nothing, and they won the series. Uh, so you could, I guess, justify it if his health is fine going forward. But, Paul, what did you make of uh, that whole Keith Law heartlip spat? It does seem like Keith Law has something against Illinois. I I disagree with throwing a guy 130 pitches in college and high school, anytime before, really in the big leagues too. Um, and it's fitting because, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, but mm-hmm. we both read The Arm, Jeff Passan's new book, which talks about uh, arm injuries and why they're happening so frequently now. So I was reading the book as I read that tweet. So I think in the moment, it makes sense. Like, I don't really understand Hartlib's comment. Like, Keith Law wasn't here. Well, he part of the the context of that is that Hartlib is saying that Sedlock never had a hard inning, so none of the pitches were that stressful, and that's one thing that some uh, 
pitching experts say. Like if if the pitches aren't stressful, then you can go longer into games. Maybe, maybe. I just unless you're in the World Series or College Baseball World Series, I don't think it makes sense to throw a guy over 130 pitches. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'm probably more on the Keith Law side of things, but Hartlib does know his pitchers, and he is a pretty good manager. Uh, had a lot of uh, success at Illinois. The hard part is, and we'll get more into this later. Like no one knows. Mm-hmm. Like no one. He could go and t- you know tear his um, ulnar collateral ligament next year, and we could say, oh, it's because of this. Or he could pitch for twenty years like Nolan Ryan, not get hurt, and we could say, no, oh, like mm-hmm. no big deal. So I don't think anyone. Keith Law doesn't know. Hartlib doesn't know. Sedlak doesn't know um, what's going to happen. Yep. Uh, thanks to Nelly, by the way, for our intro song. Our Nelly fun fact this week: he is a minority owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Wow. Uh, both minority in the fact that he is black <laughs> and that he does not own a majority of the team. Uh, the Hornets beat the Heat on Saturday. Big playoff win there. And that was the first playoff win for the franchise since 2002. And that was before the franchise moved to New Orleans. They've had a complicated uh, franchise history. The Charlotte Hornets moved to New Orleans, so they were the New Orleans Hornets. And then Charlotte got a team back in 2004, a couple years after that, and that's when Nelly became an owner, minority owner of the team. Uh, they were the Charlotte Bobcats, and then a few years ago they became the, the Charlotte Hornets again after New Orleans became the Pelicans. And this was the first playoff win for the franchise since they had become the uh, the Bobcats and now the Hornets again. So it was the first playoff win for Nelly as an owner, so I'm is sure M- he's, he's proud. Is MJ the majority owner? Yes. Initially, it was uh, like the owner of BET, and uh, and then yeah, Jordan became a minority owner, and then I think he he bought it uh, like around 2010 or so. All right, so we've got a really fun podcast for you. I think uh, it's the podcast I'm most excited for that we've ever done. Dang. Um, so the the headline is we interviewed an actual Major League Baseball player, so that's a big deal. And we'll uh, introduce you to Mr. Winkler later on. But before that, we've got our normal banter segment, talk about the happenings around baseball. Uh, Then, like Paul said, we're going to talk about um, a book by Jeff Passan called The Arm. looks into pitcher injuries, Tommy John surgery, those sorts of things. It was a tremendous book, and uh, look forward to discussing that with Paul here and having you listen in on that conversation. Have Paul's stat segment going to look at uh like the best starts ever is that right yes the best single start of all time inspired by jake arietta's recent no hitter Mm -hmm. yeah we will definitely hit on arietta's no hitter here in a second Um, but after paul's stat segment i have sounds of the game and then the interview with daniel winkler of the braves and then we'll close out the podcast by um doing the normal things that we do uh to end the podcast but first, banter around baseball. Like you just hinted at, Paul, Jake Arrieta threw the first no-hitter of 2016. On 119 pitches, he walked four, struck out six, didn't give up any hits. On Thursday night against the Reds, Cubs won 16 to nothing. I just got a few stats that were pretty amazing to me as a Cubs fan. And uh, I apologize if you've heard these uh you know, at nauseum over the last few days, but uh, over the last 24 regular season starts, Arrieta is 20 and 1, 0.86 ERA, 0.69 WHIP, 
and he has thrown two no-hitters since he last registered a loss. And that loss was last year on July 25th, and that's when Cole Hamill threw a no-hitter against the Cubs. So Hamill throws a no-hitter July 25th, and then Areta has thrown two since then and hasn't lost a game um, over that stretch. And my favorite stat, the Cubs won 16 to nothing on Thursday night. So the Cubs offense scored 16 runs. Arietta himself has given up 16 earned runs in his last 22 starts. Man. Yeah, I I think the most interesting thing about Arietta, so he's just dominant, but like, have you thought to yourself, is there a comp out there for someone who was a below average pitcher mm-hmm. for his first four or five years in the big leagues and then literally becomes like unhittable? Mm-hmm. Like point a point six whip over the course of 25 starts is is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And it would be unbelievable for a guy like Pedro, who was dominant from the inning, the first inning in the big leagues. But it's even more amazing for a guy like Arietta, who, who is not a good pitcher. For, was sent down to the minors. Yeah, uh, 2013. I had texted a friend that question, um, and I, the best answer we could come up with was Jose Bautista. With hmm. the uh, Blue Jays, not a not a pitcher, but uh, he kind of his power came out of nowhere. Um, same thing with David Ortiz. We've talked about him a yep. couple times. Um, but yeah, for a pitcher, I couldn't think of one. Um, listeners out there, if you have someone in mind, I'm sure there are examples. That would be a good article for uh, someone like Fangraphs or Baseball Prospectus to do. Um, but yeah, talk, speaking of like his dominance, it is a bit odd. Uh, I was listening to Effectively Wild uh, Baseball Podcast from Baseball Prospectus, and they talked about um, Arietta's dominance, and it's a bit strange because over the, the those last twenty four starts that I mentioned, where he's you know got the point eight six ERA, point six nine WHIP, he has thrown one hundred and seventy eight innings, and uh, in those one hundred and seventy eight innings, how many guys do you think he struck out, Paul? Hmm, I would guess I'll go one seventy. Yeah, one seventy three. So only one seventy three in one hundred and seventy eight innings. So not even a strikeout per innings pitched. Now. Again, that's a really good uh, strikeout percentage, you know, strikeout ratio. He's only walked 33 in those 178 innings, so that's why, you know, his whip is so low. Uh, But for a guy that dominant, you would expect those strikeout numbers to be a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So like Randy Johnson, he's had some dominant stretches. Pedro, everyone kind of looks at him. Um, And then Kershaw even uh, last year had an amazing stretch, and they're striking out way more guys than innings pitched. And uh, what the guys on the podcast landed on was just weak contact. He's producing a lot of weak contact. So there's probably some luck involved of uh, balls not landing. But he's just, the stuff that he's throwing, guys either strike out because it's a pretty high strikeout total, but they're also just um, not making very hard contact. And even in the game where he threw the no-hitter, I heard a lot of people talk about how he wasn't, his command wasn't that great. He walked four guys. Yeah, if you go out there like to Fangraphs or Baseball Reference and look at um, uh, contact rate, you can actually look and see like what percentage is uh, soft contact hmm. versus hard contact. So I'd encourage you. I, it's fascinating that baseball provides that data, but it even I feel like in the past, say like 10, 15 years ago, we would have just had to say, you know, Arietta's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, Dominant, but we're not really sure why. But now you can actually look at the data and say, no, he's producing soft contact 60% of the time or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And I think that the best comp I could come up with to this run is Greg Maddox. 
he didn't have uh, very high strikeout totals either. Um, always less strikeouts than innings pitched, but he just induced a lot of weak contact and uh, was a tremendous pitcher in his career. My favorite Arietta story, um, being a White Sox fan, is in Arietta's first or second year in the big leagues, Paul Canerco faced him a game in Baltimore, and uh, I think he, he got on base, got a hit or something, but then he was talking to the Orioles' first baseman, who I actually can't remember who it was at the time, but said something to the effect of, that's the nastiest stuff I've ever seen, and this was towards the end of Canerco's career, and at that time Arietta was you know, a plus-four ERA pitcher. Mm-hmm. No one really knew of him, so it just... Shows that the the stuff was there early on, but uh, it took the move to the Cubs to kind of bring it to fruition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were seven no hitters in 2015, four in 2014, three in 2013. Uh, the last perfect game was in 2012. Paul, two questions: How many no hitters will we see this year, and will we see a perfect game? Uh, sure, I'll say yes and yes. Um, well, I said how oh, many. Oh, sorry. We'll see a perfect game, and I'll go with, I'll say eight. You said seven last year. Mm-hmm. I'll go eight. Yeah, I think the number could be higher because uh, of uh, more strikeouts this year. Strikeouts are up, and there's a lot of bad teams. Um, so I'd be surprised if. Yeah, if Tanner Rourke's getting 15 if, Ks. Yeah, I'd be surprised if there weren't like at least five no-hitters this year. All right, other baseball notes. Um, Friday night was one of the the best baseball highlight nights I can remember. Yeah. Three incredible plays. Jacoby Ellsbury of the Yankees steals home. Yasiel Puig makes an unbelievable throw from the wall in right field to cut down uh, Trevor Story trying to go for a triple in course field. And then the White Sox turned a ridiculous triple play. Um, started in right field, Adam Eaton in right mm-hmm. field to the first baseman to and the catcher, I, I feel to like the story baseman. there is less the White Sox turn a triple play and more like the Rangers displayed the worst base running I've ever seen mm-hmm. yeah so I, I would uh, encourage you to look at the replays for each of those because they're all uh, super fun to watch uh, Paul my question to you and question to the listener which of those three would you most want to see in person hmm that's a good question stealing home Puig's amazing throw or White Sox triple play. Assuming I was like locked in to the game and like was intently watching, I would say the steal from home. Okay. I think that's a, such an exciting play. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I was like watching that replay a few times. That's a really hard play for a catcher. That's actually like a hard, that's not a natural move for them to catch it and then like dive towards the front of the plate. Mm-hmm. And so I, I mean, you hardly ever see that anymore for a reason. Like, it's hard to steal home. But I, I just wonder if it's maybe a little more doable than... Well, you had a left-handed pitcher from the windup. Right, yeah. That was a big part of it. But I just think that that's such an unnatural movement to, like, lurch forward for a catcher to get the front. Well, because the throw also beat him. Right, yeah. It was just a great slide. Mm-hmm. How about you? I think the throw. Yeah, it was a great throw. Just to see. Because even in the replay, you kind of, like, are left wanting like a different angle of it. Kind of any, no matter where you're at in the ballpark, I feel like that would just be incredible to see that throw from the fence two third, you know, Justin Turner barely had to move his glove yeah. to, to make the tag. I love how badly he airmails any, you know, semblance of a cut. I mean, he didn't need to hit the cutoff guy cause no one was on base, mm-hmm. but, uh, we didn't play it the best. Like, Oh no, it was a bad play up until the throw. Yeah. Anyway, so go check those out. Uh, let us know which of the three you'd want to see in person. Speaking of the White Sox, 
13 and 6, first AL team with 13 wins. And uh, I'd say the early favorite for AL Cy Young, Matt Latos. <laughs> 4 0. And he's pitched six innings in each of his four starts and has given up less than one. Or one run or less in every start. He's probably got a lower ERA than uh, Arietta. Yeah, 24 innings and two earned runs. Nice. Good signing for them. What's interesting about him, though, as I was mentioned, I was looking at like contact rates and stuff earlier this week. Batters make contact on more pitches of his than any other. They only swing and miss at 12% of his pitches. So I, it could be kind of like fool's gold, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. I had them listed here. They're uh, second in Team ERA. This year, and the Cubs are third, so a lot of good pitching from the Chicago teams. A couple of teams that are struggling, the Astros, mm-hmm. they're 6-12 and 12, heading into Sunday night's game. They're 11th um, of the 30 teams in on-base and 6th in slugging, so that's offense isn't the problem. Uh, pitching is the problem. They've got a team ERA of 4.94, which I think is 27th in baseball, um, so not good for them. But they, I, did, they did win on Saturday, so win tonight and probably headed in the right direction. Hate to say I told you so. but Did you say that? Oh, yeah. I've been in on the, the Astros' demise from the start. We say a lot of things on this podcast. They've had two uh, three-game losing streaks and one four-game losing streak. So they're, This year? Yeah, they're losing games in bunches. Wow. Uh, another team with high expectations that is not doing well, the Giants. They lost eight of nine. Um over the past couple of weeks, they did win a couple in uh, Miami this weekend, or they beat Miami a couple games in San Francisco. Um, so maybe they're headed in the right direction, but uh, they are not playing up to their expectations, I think, or even how they started the season. They started really well, but lost eight of nine um, over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, another um, story this past week, Chris Calabello, uh, first baseman for the Jays. Mm-hmm. Suspended for 80 games using uh, steroids. Didn't know how it got in his system. Shocking. Yeah, he denies it. And he's actually had several teammates come out and say, you know, it sucks that he was a casualty of like a technicality. But technicality. they won't they, they won't say what the technicality is. Yeah. I would just love if one guy just owned up to taking steroids. Like, yep, I thought I could beat the system. It was a mistake. I'll serve my time. Mm-hmm. But he was, I mean, he had a really good year last year. He had over 20 homers, really good on base percentage. Um, didn't have a great start this year. But I can't forget guys that have gotten an 80 game suspension. I think he's one of the more high profile guys. And it happened in March. So they have mm-hmm. already had the appeal. And the... Yeah, which makes sense why he's had a crappy start. Can you imagine oh, that. playing for a few <laughs> weeks be, knowing that? That would be like kind of an amazing thing to follow. Like if you knew. Just because he's kind of playing against time. Like, whenever it gets released, yeah. he's done for 80 games. I, I suppose if he didn't do it, he was probably hoping for a mm-hmm. optimistic about a, his appeal. But mm-hmm. um, last thing I have, uh, and this is kind of under the radar, I haven't seen much written about it, but I really like Joe Maurer, and he's had a great start to the year. Really? I feel good for him. Um, yeah, still not – I mean, I don't think he'll ever be a power guy. I feel like we've been wanting him to hit – you know, even 20 homers for the last few seasons and that that's just not him anymore. But I think he's, he's fourth in baseball and on base percentage at 450. Hmm. And even though the twins have been brutal offensively, he's been kind of the one bright spot. So I like Joe Maurer and uh, I'm rooting for him. That's cool. I didn't realize he was playing so well. All right. Um, we have a listener email it comes from Craig in Chicago. 
Reminder, you can send us emails at a foot in the box at gmail.com. It's a foot in the box at gmail.com. Uh, this week's question says, Please address the rumors that surfaced this week that Major League Baseball will very likely go to 32 teams in the near future. What two cities will get a team? In my mind, Montreal and Vegas are the only logical choices. Um, and assuming they get you know, two more teams, 32 teams overall, will they go to an NFL style of four team divisions? Uh, so eight four team divisions. Um, and then he gave his proposed uh, eight divisions. So I thought these were pretty interesting. Uh, Craig has in the AL, the Central would have the White Sox, Indians, Tigers, and Twins. The AL East would have the Red Sox, Yankees, Orioles, and Blue Jays. AL West would have the Angels, Athletics, Mariners, and the Vegas Wranglers. That's the team he suggested <laughs> the name. And then the AL South would have the Texas teams, Rangers and Astros, and then the Royals and Rays. Um, and the NL, you'd have the Cubs, Reds, Cards, and Brewers in the Central. In the East, you'd have the Pirates, Expos, uh, Mets, and Phillies. In the West, Giants, Dodgers, Padres, and Diamondbacks. In the South, you'd have the uh, Pirates, Braves, Marlins, and Rockies. Uh, Rockies, uh, <laughs> not a great fit for the NL South, but maybe uh, just not a, not a good fit anywhere else either. So, Paul, what are your thoughts on expansion? I guess maybe yeah. give some background on what Manfred even said about sure. expansion. Yeah, I mean, I, Craig said the rumors this week, they're more than rumors. Manfred essentially came out and said, we want to expand. It's just a matter of before they can add two teams, they want to take care of the stadium situations in Oakland and Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read his quotes, though, it's not – it's a it's way off. Like it's probably in the next 10 years, not sure. the next couple. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say it's, it's going to happen um, eventually. It's been 18 years since they, they added teams. 98 was when they added mm-hmm. the – Rays and the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks, yeah. So it's been a while, so it makes sense. Um, I actually uh, would be really interested. I know Craig mentioned Montreal as one of the international sites, mm-hmm. and I think that does make the most sense. Yeah, if they expand and don't give Montreal a team, people are going like, to like. But I would, freak out I Manfred. would be very interested. In, and Manfred said he once he made a comment about wanting one of the two to be international. Mexico City would be really intriguing because it's the largest city in North America, which I didn't know, but it's 7,000 feet above sea level. Uh, so you'd have a lot of homers. So yeah, the two, I think they've played two um, exhibition games there and they're super high scoring games. <laughs> so it would increase offense. But it would also be, uh, it'd be interesting because Mexico City is really dangerous and I don't think any free agent would want to sign there. So Yeah, my, uh, my thoughts, Montreal would definitely be one of the two teams. So then you've got the other team to figure out. I don't think Vegas would get one because of gambling stuff. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Mexico City would get one because of just the risk involved there. So you've got some other cities that are possibilities. Louisville is one that intrigues me. Mm. Uh, You've got Portland, also uh, rumored to be one of the uh, few finalists. Uh, Cuba, but again, also that's kind of like Mexico City. There's risk involved. Charlotte. And then Austin, Texas, are the uh, the final on my list here. So I Louisville and um, Portland probably are the most intriguing to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about Portland. It, it's never seemed like a baseball town. But then again, how can a town seem like a baseball town 
if it doesn't have a major league mm-hmm. team. Yeah, and I think you like the Northwest, like you look at how the Mariners are supported. Uh, you've got just a lot of like loyal diehard fans that embrace the team, and I think they were an expansion team in like the seventies, mm-hmm. and they were screwed by Major League Baseball before that. They got a team for one year, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, the Mariners came later. So I think Portland could support a team, and then Louisville just with like Louisville Slugger and another team from the Midwest that would be intriguing to me. What's, that, inter- what's interesting you mentioned Charlotte, mm-hmm. the White Sox AAA affiliate is in Charlotte, and they have what's considered the best park, brand new. And they they've led the minor leagues in attendance hmm. the last two years, so it would be bad for the the White Sox and the Charlotte Knights, their minor league team. But it would be probably a, a good move for Are baseball. The Charlotte Knights out outdrawing the White Sox. I, that's actually a good question. I should look into that. I mean, no, but it's probably closer close. than you think. Uh, a couple of fears I have with expansion, kind of close out this the conversation. I think Major League Baseball and Manfred need to figure out three situations that aren't drawing very well at all. Tampa Bay is drawing 17,000 this year. Oakland is drawing 18,000. They have a terrible ballpark, so does Tampa. And then Cleveland, who's got a newer stadium, they're only drawing 16,000. They're worst of the three. So before we talk about expansion, uh, you know, let's sure up the three teams that are drawing so poorly. Even the White Sox are, like, down there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one fear I have. The other one is the number of playoff teams getting increased. Right now we have 10 of 30. This would most likely bump it up to at least 12 of uh, 32. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't oppose it just because of that, but I just I don't want the playoffs to get even more watered down. Like the NBA right now, the first rounds are so boring, I think, and such big blowouts because you've got 16 of 30 teams making mm-hmm. the playoffs each year. Then um, I also worry about, like, do we have enough quality players to have two more teams? Like in the NFL right now, a lot of people talk about the quality of play was down last year because quarterbacks, there weren't mm-hmm. enough good quarterbacks for all 32 teams. Right. So I wonder if there's good like good enough pitching, good enough position players uh, for 32 major league teams. Yeah, so an interesting point about that, uh, Jay Jaff of Sports Illustrated. He said, uh, since 98, the United States, the population has increased by 17%. Yeah. So if you just like look at it from that perspective, even though, you know, less people are playing baseball percentage wise than they were in 98, I want it, uh, for nothing else, but the expansion draft, which I think oh, is those a, are always fascinating. Yeah. I remember Wade Boggs was the, um, for the race, devil race, number one pick. Yeah. You know? Even seeing some of the names for the Charlotte. Uh, Bobcats, their expansion draft. Yeah. Um, that was pretty fascinating to uh, to see. All right, well, that does it for a very long opening banter segment. Uh, next up, we have Paul and I's discussion on Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, for Out of the Box. Yeah, as Pete mentioned, uh, we were discussing uh, The Arm by Jeff Passan. He's a baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports, and this book has actually caused me to uh, read his stuff a little bit more, and he's a, a really good columnist. Uh, you, for out of the box last week, you had a Jeff Passan article, and I've just mm-hmm. been noticing his stuff more and started following him on Twitter. So I would recommend him as a, a baseball writer in general. But the book is phenomenal. Uh, it's called The Arm, and the, the subtitle is Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. And uh, I'll read a, a section from the introduction. Uh, Passan talks about how he does 
know, three years of research goes to everywhere from Japan to youth baseball uh, facilities in the States and spends a ton of time um, researching all to answer uh, two questions. How did baseball fail the pitching arm and what can be done to save it? So that really sets up the, the entire book. And I would say, Peter and I were talking before the podcast, it, it's probably my second favorite baseball book behind Moneyball. Um, I would Very similar vibe to Moneyball. Yeah. Kind of covering this larger than life, mm-hmm. you know, theme that all of us could have seen if we just paid attention, but yeah. now we're seeing like the numbers behind it. Yeah. And so that I'd say the kind of the biggest thing for me in reading the book was just, I mean, the book seeks out to answer the question that I didn't even really know I should be asking, mm-hmm. which is how did baseball fail the arm? Like I wouldn't have used that phrasing, that terminology. I would have said, would yeah. You, would you use it now? Um, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think it's, uh, I didn't realize this before reading the book, but John Smoltz in his hall of fame speech last year used the term epidemic talking about what baseball is doing to, uh, to pitchers arms. Yeah. A couple of stats, uh, to, to kind of give context for the situation that we're at now, he gives right off the bat, 50% of pitchers end up on the disabled list every season and one fourth of major league pitchers have had Tommy John surgery. So one fourth. One of every four pitchers has had Tommy John surgery. That is way more than I had expected. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't even, uh, I didn't realize it was that bad. I, I knew it was an issue, but um, so that was kind of the, probably the biggest takeaway, and the thing I'll carry with me the most is is that it is an epidemic. Um, but then two, and this is the kind of the haunting reality for me, and I think anyone who reads the book, is that Passon doesn't really answer that second question. You know, what can be done to save it? Like all sorts of people are trying different things. Like uh, the Orioles started, they, they were super protective of their number one pick, Dylan Bundy. He blows out his arm. Uh, I think it was the Astros. I could be wrong on this. Uh, a team is, is pitching their guys, uh, their top pitching prospects in the minors, three innings. Um, so, and, and, you know, he, he talks to um, some people who are, the Cardinals have hired somebody specifically for the purpose of assessing uh, how how they can do better at, at keeping their pitchers on the field. Dodgers are doing a ton of stuff, but no one there's really no answer at this point, and uh, that's that's scary. It, you know, I I thought for a second like, is this baseball's concussion? You know, <laughs> and I know that question is going to drive you crazy because mm-hmm. you hate the NFL and I don't hate the NFL. You, you hate the fact that you know the yeah the cover up. But um, it is a black eye, and uh, baseball really doesn't have an answer for why one-fourth of their pitchers are blowing out their arms, and uh, yeah, so it's just kind of a haunting reality. A couple things. First of all, uh, Paul read the whole book. I did not read the whole book. Slacker. I, uh, I uh, failed you all miserably. Uh, I did get through the first 60 pages or so. Um so I, I plan on finishing the book, and maybe next week and a couple weeks from now I'll give you my uh, my final thoughts on it. Uh, so just wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, books are hard to read, very hard to read. <laughs> um, so, But it was a phenomenal book. Phenomenal, phenomenal 60 pages. Phenomenal introduction. And I think, oh, I guess just to start off with your rebuttal for your NFL uh, jab, even if this is like, the same level 
of um, you know, it's say it's affecting the same number of guys that that uh, concussions are, which is not CTE. Yeah, that C like there's fear that CTE could be affecting like everyone that's ever played essentially, right? To a certain degree, like us even playing high school football. So this is not affecting every baseball player that's ever played. We know that it's not affecting every pitcher that's ever pitched. Um, so even if the scope was the same, though, just assuming that the effects of an arm injury versus a brain sure. injury are just very different. So sure. I don't, I could see this kind of spiraling to the conversation spiraling to like, Oh, every sport's got its thing. So, right. you know, let's just ignore the NFL thing. So anyway, that's, that's my rebuttal to what you said, but I do agree that this is a, a, a black eye for baseball. And I, you know, we mentioned stats about major league pitchers. My biggest fear or the thing that causes me to kind of step back and say, whoa, what are we doing is with the pitching or the, the youth pitching stuff. Yeah. So uh, a study that was done in 2015 by Brandon Erickson, who's an orthopedic surgeon, the study published uh, showed that of all the UCL reconstructions that were ever performed, all the Tommy John surgeries ever performed, 56% were on teenagers. And you've got kids that are as young as 13 that are replacing this ligament in their elbow because they're pitching so young and pitching so many innings so young. And so I think that, to me, is the thing that causes me the most angst and the most frustration with the baseball system um, is the youth culture of pitching. Yeah, uh, George Dorman, a writer for Sports Illustrated, he did a book several years ago about AAU in college basketball. Mm -hmm. It was sort of an in-depth look at uh, just how messed messed up of a system it is. And I felt like this... Obviously, the whole focus of the book isn't on youth baseball and youth sports, but it did have some hints of that where you just realize, like, what are we doing with, you know, kids pitching year round, guys throwing, kids throwing 200 innings Mm -hmm. in a week, Mm -hmm. like, um, when they're 13 years old, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, It's crazy. A couple nuggets that I had that were just fascinating to me. So the uh, passing... Uh, talks a lot of doctors, and one myth that we can cross out and not talk about anymore is that curveballs cause arm injuries. Uh, studies have shown that curveballs actually cause less strain on the arm than the fastball. So really what causes the stress on the UCL, a ligament, what's the name for it, Paul? The ulnar collateral ligament. There you go. That ligament, what causes that to break in the elbow is uh, the force in which people are throwing. So there's more... Um, Tommy John surgery is now to, to fix this ligament because guys are throwing harder and there's just so right. much torque on that ligament in your elbow over and over and over again that uh, eventually it breaks. So actually to say, you know, oh, little leaguers shouldn't throw curveballs because it causes all this strain or that's why Kerry Wood had mm-hmm. Tommy John or whatever. That's just kind of a myth. Um, it's the fastballs that cause that. And myth, myth number two, and maybe you were going to get to this. Uh, everyone says that the the throwing motion isn't natural, when actually it is natural. Huh. It, it's a natural throwing motion that was not covered in the first sixty pages. <laughs> he goes into he actually looks into like uh, evolutionary science and stuff like that, and uh, it, it's a natural throwing motion in moderation. It's not natural to do that one hundred times in a three hour period. Mm-hmm. So another myth dispelled. Yep, and another um, another quote that I liked from uh, Passon. He said that. Doctors believe almost every UCL tear is an accumulation injury, a ligament worn down over time that finally relents. 
And uh, this is scary because it's not like uh, a one-time thing. It's not like you can, like Mark Pryor had arm injury, arm issues, or Kerry Wood had arm issues, and so that one time where we threw him 150 pitches, we shouldn't have done that, and he would have been fine. It's a accumulation thing. So over time, it builds up. And so for a lot of these guys that throw so many innings, there's almost nothing you can do in like one individual start. It's an accumulation thing. So that was helpful for me to think about it. Yeah, and I <clears throat> I mentioned kind of the two takeaways earlier, but the third one for me was uh, the effect that this has on MLB front offices and, and players, and we'll get into this more when uh, we talk about the interview with uh, Dan Winkler of the Braves. Um, but the uh, passing actually uh, goes in-depth to John Lester's free agency and, like, you know, follows the Cubs' pursuit of him and then also in depth with Daniel Hudson, a guy returning from Tommy John surgery, and Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer essentially said, you know, Lester had like a, a bone spur in his elbow. He never had issues with his UCL, but you know, had a a chunk of his bone hanging in his left elbow. And Epstein essentially said, you know, we're just every time I get a call from the trainer, I'm just hoping that Arietta or Lester aren't blowing their their arms out and so it's like constantly in the back of his mind uh when he gets calls from the trainer um something that might help luster is that he doesn't throw as hard as sure other guys he's yeah low 90s um yeah so i just thought that was interesting that even with all the cup success uh he quotes epstein as saying it like we're just one call away from changing the franchise mm-hmm. and that's that's mm-hmm. insane noah Syndergaard is a guy that i mm-hmm. think uh will need tommy john surgery He's mm-hmm. throwing like average fastballs, like high nineties, hundred consistently, yeah. and I just don't think the arm can handle that. Yeah, and the, that gets into the effect this has on players. And you talk about guys who've never had it. There's that lingering doubt: if I throw hard, will I eventually blow up my arm? You know, guys are all around them are doing it. But then for the guys rehabbing from Tommy John, I didn't realize how excruciating the rehab is, and both in terms of patience, like just. You essentially have to teach yourself how to throw again. And then two, uh, it's just like a, a really depressing thing, especially if like in the book, uh, interviews, Todd coffee, who's a relief pitcher, like he blows out his arm for the Dodgers is cut by the Dodgers after the season. So it's essentially on his own for rehab. Like he's not able to go to the team facilities, doesn't have access to team doctors, has to find his own trainer, own doctor to recover from mm-hmm. Tommy John. So I just, I didn't really realize the. I didn't really realize how difficult the recovery was from Tommy John, and there's no guarantee of you ever getting back to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. One uh, one part of the book that I thought was really fascinating was just the history of the first Tommy John surgery. So for those that don't know, the Tommy John surgery is named after a pitcher that was first given the the surgery uh, back in 1974. Uh, it was performed in September of 1974. So Tommy John was a left-handed pitcher, pitched for a lot of different teams, Indians, White Sox, Dodgers, uh, Angels, Yankees. Um, but he, he had the surgery when he was a pitcher for the Dodgers. Like I said, in 1974, uh, Dr. Frank Job was the first person to perform it. He's kind of become a legend, one of the best uh, surgeons uh, in sports history, really. And Tommy John was hurt in July of 1974. 
threw a pitch in that game, knew something was wrong right away. Spent the rest of the season trying to fix it. Uh, at one point, like his elbow, there was it was so dead that they treated it like a sprained ankle. They taped like a figure eight around his elbow to like keep it in a 90 degree angle so that he could pitch, but there was just no life on the fastball. Uh, so they tried a bunch of different things, crazy techniques to try to fix his arm. Nothing worked though. Couldn't throw it very hard. And uh, eventually he went and saw Frank Job, this doctor, and uh, using an x-ray, they didn't have MRIs at the time, using an x-ray, he saw that uh, the UCL um, ligament was, was the problem, that it was torn, and that uh, that was why he couldn't throw very hard. So this ligament is in your elbow, and it connects uh, bones. That's what ligaments do. <laughs> um, but if it, it breaks, it's just a small little ligament. If it breaks then the whole throwing motion is thrown off. Um, you just can't. There's pain, and you just can't throw very hard. Um, and so they essentially gave up. You know, They said, rest rest on it. Joe told them, rest it, see if it gets better. It probably won't. Your career is probably over. And that's another myth that the, the book uh, disproved for me. Old-time pitchers uh, had injuries just as much as modern-day guys, but their careers are just shorter, and there was just way more pitchers. Yeah. So a pitch, pitcher might throw 600 innings in a season and then only pitch like two seasons. Right. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. Anyway, so Tommy John is pretty much told his career is over. You know, go retire. Like your arm is fine. You can live without that ligament and, and be fine uh, long term. But he wants to play baseball. He's stubborn and really wants to pitch again. He's, uh, I think, 31 at the time. So he doesn't have many years left in his career, really. Um but he, he wants to pitch, give it everything he's got. So Job knows that this ligament in your wrist is useless. It has no purpose, and that doctors had been using that ligament uh, to strengthen the ankles of polio patients. And so Job hypothesized, like, hey, we can use that ligament to replace this UCL uh, ligament, or it's actually a tendon in your, in your wrist. So take this tendon replace the UCL, and then see how it goes. But no one had ever done it before. You know, it was a crazy experiment. Uh, Job actually told Tommy John that there was a 1% chance of this surgery working. Uh, but Job later said that he really thought there was about a 90% chance. So he thought, pretty good chance that uh, this will work. And if you're curious, the tendon in your wrist, thought this was really interesting. If you if you take your thumb and your pinky, put them together, and then make a, a, a clench your fist really hard, there's this ligament in your wrist that pops out, and that is the that's the tendon or the ligament that they take from your wrist that's useless, and then they put it into your your elbow. About eighty percent of people have it, twenty percent don't. Uh, they were lucky that Tommy John did have that in his wrist, so that they were able to do the the surgery. So they do the surgery in September, on September twenty fifth, nineteen seventy four, and for the first three months, it looks like it was going to be a complete failure. His Tommy John's hand was permanently in a claw. And he couldn't couldn't even feel his thumb and his pinky, and this was because that there was damage to the ulnar nerve in the elbow. So this is like the biggest thing when you do a Tommy John surgery. You have to make sure if you're a doctor that you don't damage the ulnar nerve or don't move it around. And so three months, clenched fist. You know he still can't throw. Uh, looks like a complete failure. Job goes back into the arm in December of 1974 and uh, moves the nerve around uh, to to not damage it anymore. And after that, things look a lot better. 
Um, he slowly recovers. Tommy John slowly recovers, starts pitching more and more. And then in September of 1975, he pitches in his first instructional game. They send him to the fall league, pitches in his first game, and things continue to go well, gains velocity, um, it doesn't hurt, um, and it looks like it's going to be a success. Uh, in 1976, uh, at the age of 33, and this is this is a big deal because only eight pitchers in baseball were older than 34 at the time, uh, so at the age of 33, John pitches in his first Major League Baseball game again on April 16th. And that was his 319th career start. He would never miss another start. He played for 15 more seasons. Uh, he made 382 post-surgery starts, so more than he did before the surgery. And um, that's more starts, twice as many starts as anyone else over the age of 31 that has had Tommy John surgery. Uh, he retired, like I said, 15 years later, had 288 career wins. Um, so just a... Uh, Crazy career, you know. I'd encourage you to look at his Wikipedia page. So many fascinating nuggets there. Um, but in many respects, the first Tommy John surgery was the most successful one. Uh, Passon talks about that in the book because um, he never had any issues again, um, and it was a it was a, a, a success. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking of fascinating nuggets, maybe we can uh, end on this note. Uh, one of the reasons I like baseball books a lot, like this and like Moneyball is some of the, the nuggets you get along the way that don't necessarily add anything to the premise of the book, but are just interesting because I'm a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, Tyler Flowers, former White Sox catcher, considered playing in uh, Japan a couple seasons ago with Daniel Hudson, which I thought was interesting, was never reported. Uh, just because they were close? They were close and uh, just thought he could have more success over there. <laughs> Probably true. Um, also, the whole chapter about the Cubs' pursuit of luster and free agency was really fascinating to mm-hmm. me. Um, and not just the Cubs' pursuit, but the Red Sox and the Giants. And the fact that he really wanted to play for the Braves, um, but the Braves didn't really give him a decent offer. Hmm. Uh, the fact that his wife and his kids have a $250,000 travel budget to come visit Lester. Oh, with the Cubs? Yeah, from their home in Atlanta. Um, so the book is just filled with all sorts of nuggets like that. That I think are. I got one more. One of the things that doctors were convinced of uh, before uh, Tommy John surgery uh, was that teeth had an impact on oh, your, yeah. your arm. And so, even in like the 1950s and 60s, you had doctors extracting teeth of major league pitchers because they were convinced that the teeth uh, had like poison seeping from them that would affect how your arm could throw a baseball. Which, like, given that they're baseball players, uh, it's probably good that these some of these teeth were being extracted because they were oh, like chewing tobacco, covered stuff. in chewing tobacco, or gross. But yeah. yeah, the poison was really the the effects of tobacco use. Yeah, but yeah, I would encourage wholeheartedly you to go read the book. It's, mm-hmm. I think seventeen dollars on Amazon. Um, if you email a foot in the box, I can loan you mine. <laughs> if you live in the area, but really good book, and uh, Passon did a great job. Absolutely. Yep, go buy the book. Look forward to reading the rest of it myself. Next up, we have Paul's stat segment. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW category? is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. 
All right. The uh, question that we are going to look at this week with my stat segment, which again, to remind you, it's kind of a bite-sized research uh, section, um, is what is considered the greatest start of all time? And by start, I mean a uh, starting pitching performance in a single game. And this was inspired because of uh, Jake Arrieta's recent no-hitter. And so I was just in my head thinking, all right, what's the like the gold standard? What's the, what's the best start of all time? Can we pinpoint it? And it turns out we can. Um, Bill James came up with a metric called Game Score, which is now called Bill James Game Score. And uh, it seeks to do that exact thing. So uh, I'll briefly describe how he comes up with the Game Score. Uh, you start with 50 points. Every pitcher starts with 50 points. And you get one point for each out you record in a start. You get two points for every inning past the fourth inning. So if you did a pitch a complete game, you would get ten points because you're pitching five innings past the fourth, and it's two innings per. Uh, you get one point for strikeout, minus two points for any hits you give up, and minus four points for uh, any earned runs, and minus one for walk. Um, so fairly arbitrary, but I think James did a little bit of research into why each of those are weighted the way they are. Uh, Peter, do you have any guesses using Bill James's game score what the best single pitching performance of all time is? Uh, I know it exactly. Kerry Wood, 104, uh, because... 105. Yes, perhaps perhaps 105. Um, I know this because uh, sounds of the game we're going to look at. The, the start where Kerry Wood did this, so it's a uh, fate that you would well you would do it. This our week. twin ESP going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, it's exactly right. Kerry Wood in '98 is considered the best start of all time. Using, 104, just an amazing number. Um, uh, it's May 6 versus the Astros, and it sounds like we're going to do that as our sound of the game this week. So Pete can talk a little bit more about the specifics of that game. But 20 strikeouts, one hit, no walks, and that adds up to 105 or. 104. Uh, mm-hmm. The second best, and this happened more recently. Max Scherzer. Yes, Max Scherzer, 2015, um, October of last year. He had a score of 104, zero hits, zero walks, 17 strikeouts. Um, and uh, for comparison's sake, uh, Jake's Jake Arrieta's start this week was an 89. Mm-hmm. So the lack of strikeouts and the four walks you know what his, hurts him there. His no-hitter last year was. I, I assume, assume that would be higher. Yeah, I didn't look that up, but uh, I would imagine that it was higher. So um, Kerry Wood, 105, is your gold standard for pitching performance. Um, but really interesting stat. And There have been like 120 scores over 100, I think. Yeah, uh, if you pitch into extra innings like a lot of old-timers used to, uh, you can really rack up the points. So I think in terms of nine inning games, uh, it's not quite as high. But. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you for that. And thank you to Hawk Harrelson for the intro. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. This is Peter back on the podcast to do Sounds of the Game. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we take a look at one broadcaster or one broadcasting moment in baseball's history, and uh, give context for it, and then play the audio for you. This week on the podcast, we actually have two uh, moments, two audio clips that we're going to play for you, but before we play either of those, uh, I'm going to play Vince Scully reading a grocery list. Paul, have you heard this? 
Yeah, I did hear it. It's hilarious. So uh, enjoy, uh, with no context, Vince Scully reading a grocery list. Reading a grocery list would be interesting to me. And lo and behold, somebody heard that, emailed somebody who got it to ESPN. And this is a guy who was with the Padres in the 70s and arranged 40 years ago for Vince Scully to read a grocery list. Still had the audio. So we got Vince Scully reading a grocery list. We've got a dozen eggs, a quart of milk, a loaf of bread, a can of frozen orange juice, six small white onions, a green pepper, garlic powder, a package of American cheese, pickles, kosher that is, bananas, cornflakes, maple syrup, toothpaste, paper towels, toilet paper, six bars of soap, hot dogs, quarter pound of chopped meat, steak, lamb chops, package of spaghetti, three apples, bologna, cottage cheese, a pound of butter, two ears of corn, beer, ketchup, peanut butter, soy sauce, and a half a pound of coffee. So that was Vince Scully reading a grocery list. Bologna has got to be tops, uh, tops there. Yeah, Vince Scully is just the best. That voice is uh, it's golden. All right, so our actual sounds of the game this week. The first one, as Paul just hinted at, is Kerry Woods' 20 strikeout game on May 6th, 1998. Uh, he struck out 20 batters against the Astros at Wrigley Field. It was Kerry Woods' fifth career start. He was a rookie at the time, just 20 years old. In his first four starts, he had a 5.89 ERA. Um, no walks, one hit. Uh, the one hit is a very cheap uh, infield single that uh, Cubs third baseman Kevin Ory should have handled. If you talk to our brother Kevin Elliott, he will tell you that it should have been an error. Um, but there was also one hit-by-pitch, Craig Biggio, who uh, led baseball in uh, hit-by-pitches that year with his massive elbow guard. Uh, Kerry Wood, Paul, do you have any guesses on how many pitches he threw in that game? Um, 129. 122. Hmm. So not as uh, not as high as I was expecting. Uh, like Paul mentioned, highest game score, or Bill James game score, in the history of baseball. There was an announced crowd at the game of 15,000. Uh, it was a weekday spring game. Uh, not not the best weather. It was raining as well. So um, only 15,000 people there. The uh, most likely number of actual people that showed up was 11,000, according to people that were actually at the game. Wood would win Rookie of the Year in 1998 pretty easily. Helped the Cubs make the playoffs for the first time in... Nine years since 1989. Um, but very fitting with this week's podcast, he actually had Tommy John surgery in 1999 and missed the whole season. And uh, actually, years later, he would say that he felt the pain in his elbow uh, for the first time on his final strikeout of the 20 strikeout game against Derek Bell on the curveball that he threw. Um, so he would miss all of 1999, come back, have decent success with the Cubs. Uh, as a starter and then as a reliever with Indians and Yankees and um, back with the Cubs. But uh, that was Kerry Wood for you. Chip Carey is on the call of this game. Uh, he, of course, is the son of Harry Carey, Cubs broadcaster. Chip and Harry were actually scheduled to broadcast together in 1998, but Harry passed away in February, so Chip stayed on to be the play-by-play man in 1998. He was with the Cubs uh, up until the mid-2000s. He's now the broadcaster for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, Fun and random fact, he was also the Orlando Magic play-by-play announcer 
from 1989 through 1998. Uh, so this is Chip Carey calling all 20 strikeouts of Carey Woods on May 6th, 1998. Two balls, two strikes. Got him with the heat. As the day continues and he changes speeds, the gunslinger ready, the 2-2. Strike three, call. One and two from Carey Wood. Got him swinging. Three and two. Got him swinging. Got him with it again. Strike three, call. The 0-2. Strike three, call. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Strike three, call. He has struck out the last four men he's faced. Make it five in a row. See you later. That was Kerry Wood, striking out 20 in 1998. The record that he was tying was Roger Clemens. And uh, he, Roger Clemens, did it on April 29th, 1986. So this is why we're doing it this week. Anniversary, 30-year anniversary of Roger Clemens striking out 20, breaking the record of 19 held before that. So April 29th is Friday of this week. Expect to see a lot of tweets but a foot in the box is ahead of the curve. We're talking about it before that. Uh, so Roger Clemens struck out 20 against the Seattle Mariners on April 29, 1986. Clemens was 23 years old. This is his third year in the majors. He was less dominant than Kerry Wood. Uh, he gave up three hits, one run on one home run from Gordon Thomas of the Mariners. Uh, 1986 was his breakout season. Uh, Clemens, not not Gordon Thomas. Uh <laughs> Clemens won the Cy Young and MVP in 1986, had a 2.48 ERA in 254 innings. In that uh, season, he had an 8.9 war, according to baseball reference. The attendance for this game was also low. Again, a spring game with bad weather uh, during the week. Attendance at Fenway Park was 13,414. Paul, do you think anyone was at Roger Clemens and Kerry Woods? Start uh, and did any person crossover? Doubtful. Perhaps a beat writer. Maybe. The announcer for this game uh, is a Red Sox announcer. Two of them. Ned Martin was on play by play, and Bob Montgomery is on the color. Sean McDonough, ESPN announcer now, mainly does college basketball. I think he was the studio host uh, for the Red Sox that year. Ned Martin was the Red Sox announcer for 30 years from 1961 to 1992. He died the day after Ted Williams' memorial service in 2002. So a tough couple of days for Red Sox fans. Bob Montgomery was a uh, former catcher for the Red Sox, played 10 seasons, 1970 to 1979. So here is uh, a clip from the ninth inning of Roger Clemens striking at 20 batters on April 29th, 1986. Is the ninth inning with Roger Clemens, one strikeout away from a major league tying a major league record, two strikeouts away from creating one. He has fanned 18 
through the eight innings. And in that time, he has thrown 124 pitches, 84 for strikes. Changed defensively for the Red Sox in the ninth, Dave Stapleton playing first base. Stapleton replacing Baylor at first base. And it's still just a skinny lead for Roger, even though he's been so overpowering. There they are in right field. The K's are up. 18 of them. And this crowd pumped up and hanging around to see what happens in the ninth. The top of the order will be up against Clemens, Owen, Bradley, and Phelps. Spike Owen, a teammate of Rogers in college, and the only switch hitter the Mariners have, has struck out single to right and flied deep to center. Clemens has allowed three hits, a home run by Gorman Thomas, single to Owen, and a single to Tarnable. So here we go. Strike one. I wonder if he knows he's that close to a record. I, I don't know. He knows he has a Red Sox record. Little breaking ball for ball one. One ball, one strike to Owen. Little foul ball down the third base. And now the count is one and two. Owen really tried to duck away from that. Somehow you got the feeling that these fans are glad that that was a foul. Yeah. They all come to their feet again. They're looking back and they're glad that Baylor dropped that foul ball, too. Got a strikeout out of it. Might make the difference. One ball, two strikes to Owen. Count hangs at one and two. Owen is not an easy man to strike out. He'll usually get the bat on the ball. One and two. to go to try to set a new one. Here's Bradley. Ball one. Here is the record tire. Good way off the high. 1-0 pitch to Bradley. Ball two. Bill Bradley has struck out three times. He was number two, number seven, and number 15. Strike one. Two balls, one strike, and he's still working like a machine out there. Strike two. Two and two. Fenway. I'm surprised they're going back down. I would think they would just stay up. Yep. As a matter of fact, I'm going to stand up. A new record. 
Torres has set a major league record for strikeouts in a game. 20. strikeouts in a game and here's Ken Phelps ball one that would be something if he could finish with a flare and strike out the side the way he started why not <laughs> he did that count is two and nothing to Phelps oh mercy strike in there. Two balls and one strike to Phelps, the left-handed batter. He has struck out three times. He has been number three, number eight, and number 16. To shortstop, Romero. Game's over, and Roger Clemens has fanned 20 for a new record. What a performance by the kid from the University of Texas. So that was Roger Clemens striking out 20. Uh, it's happened two other times where a guy has struck out 20 besides Wood and Clemens. Randy Johnson struck out 20 in nine innings in 2001. It was also early in the season in May. Uh, but that was an extra inning game, so that's not uh, included for some reason. In most, uh, most times you see that list. And then Clemens actually struck out 20 again uh, about 10 years later against the Tigers in uh, Tiger Stadium. Uh, so, yep, that was Sounds of the Game. Next up, we have our interview with Daniel Winkler. Our interview this week, like I said, is with Daniel Winkler. He is a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. He is from Effingham, Illinois, which isn't too far from us uh, in Champaign. Paul, do you know how far it is? About an hour 20, I would guess. I actually have no idea. Southwest. I Sounds believe. like it would be close to Champaign. Yeah, so he's from Effingham. Uh, he went to Parkland College, junior college that's here in Champaign, and then he pitched at the University of Central Florida. He was drafted by the Cubs out of high school, uh, but he opted to go to college, like I mentioned. Uh, he was drafted by the Rockies in the 2011 draft. Um, he pitched in their system for several seasons, uh, was very, very dominant uh, at every level that he pitched at. And just before he was scheduled to be called up, to the Rockies in 2014, Winkler tore the UCL ligaments in his elbow and had Tommy John surgery. Uh, in December of 2014, Winkler was selected in the Rule 5 draft by the Atlanta Braves. Uh, so during his recovery, he was he was taken by the Braves in the Rule 5 draft. Uh, after making a full recovery from Tommy John surgery, Winkler made his major league debut for the Braves, uh, pitching in relief on September 21st. 2015. After a strong spring training this year, he made the Braves opening day roster. Uh, he actually struck out the side against the Nationals on opening day of this year. However, during his third appearance out of the bullpen this year, uh, Winkler fractured his right elbow on a pitch on April 10th against the St. Louis Cardinals. 
Earlier this weekend, I, Peter, had uh, the privilege to speak with Daniel about his career in baseball, his two devastating arm injuries, and what has helped him persevere through it all. So it's a great interview. Very thankful for Daniel for doing it. Um, so without further ado, here's my interview with Dan Winkler. This is Peter back on the podcast, and I am joined by Atlanta Braves pitcher Daniel Winkler. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. All right, Dan. Well, you've experienced a lot of success in your baseball career, but being on this podcast uh, has to be at, <laughs> has to be at the top of the list, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've been on a, a lot of podcasts, but this is uh, pretty special, actually. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Appreciate that. All right. Well, I've got a lot of questions for you, and uh, we'll start with uh, the the bad stuff first. A few weeks ago, on April 10th, uh, you broke your elbow pitching in the seventh inning against the Cardinals. Um, how have you been doing since then? I guess personally, health-wise, what what's been going on? Um, health-wise, has been getting better. Um, I you know started out pretty in a lot of pain, but uh, right now after surgery, I'm in a lot of pain. Um, but it's getting better. I can see gains, I guess, every day. Um, my range of motion is getting better. Um, you know, uh, mentally, it's uh, it's tough because uh, here last year, and uh, you know, I I finally make the team this year, my first opening day, and uh, I've been pitching well. And you can go down with this, it's and then another year I'm going to be spent on on the DL. So it's hard. Um, you know, they're Right now, I'm just at the point where I don't care where it is, but I just want to pitch somewhere. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's uh, it's tough right now, but uh, my faith in, in God has been uh, has been something that's always been a strong point for me, and, and it's something that's helped me through this so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the the doctors telling you about? Uh, like, what's the rehab look like, and how long will mm-hmm. you be out, and when can you start pitching again? Uh, so it's pretty rare, to, um, fracturing your medial epicondyle, which is the little, the tiny bone, uh, in your elbow. Um, it's pretty rare. Dr. Andrews says he see, he does about four or five a year. So, mm. um, and he does hundreds of Tommy John surgeries. Yeah. So, um, the rehab for this, they told me I can return the baseball activities three months. So, um, I can start throwing again three months, but, uh, we're going to take it slower just because there are some things that I'm going to fix mechanically and kinetically for me mm-hmm. to stay healthy. So that's one thing we're going to be focusing on. So I'm hope I'm shooting for spring training next year, be healthy. Um, but we'll see if the trainers are, are on the same board with that. So I guess when you, this last time when you had the arm injury, uh, mm-hmm. was it, like the fact that you didn't need Tommy John again, was that kind of like a miracle or what was going through your head? Like, did you think you you had torn the UCL again? Well, I didn't think I, I tore it honestly, because that, that tendon was so strong that, so basically uh, where I broke that bone, that's where they drill the tendon into. Okay. So um, that tendon was just tugging on that bone. Um, so Basically, the tendon was so strong and there was so much stress on my elbow that it had to break somewhere. Um, and the tendon was strong, so it, the next weakest thing was my bone. Hmm. Um, so I kind of was 
pretty confident uh, that the ligament was fine because after I did it, uh, Dr. Royster, he's one of our team doctors here in Atlanta. He went through the x-rays and stuff with me, and, you know, he told me that I had a fractured elbow. And I was like, well, how's the ligament? He's like, I think the ligament's going to be fine. He, he, he tested out pretty well. Um, so I was pretty confident that the ligament was fine. But um, it it is definitely a blessing that I don't have to do the Tommy John surgery again on top of the medial epicondyle um, reconstruction. So it's it, it's it's good news, but it's still it's it's going to be a while for me to be back. Mm-hmm. I actually I went back and read some of the quotes um, when you had Tommy John in 2014, and you like the injuries seemed different. Like this time, right when you did it, you know it seemed like there was a lot of pain on the mound, but in yeah. 2014. You said you, like something just fell off. Um, yeah. So just compare the the two injuries. Like when they happened, were they a lot different? Uh, yeah. Um, when I tore my UCL, it was like a rubber band snapped. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like a, a tingling um, sensation up my my arm. And you know, when uh, the trainer came out, he asked me what was wrong. Said I felt the pop, and you know, we went in right away. And I was under the impression that I might have been able to continue or I, I thought it was a flexor a strain or something, um, which, you know, that's the, the common thing in, in baseball when you have TJ's flexor strain. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was hoping that was the case, but obviously it wasn't. But I was never in a lot of pain. A couple of days after it, um, it, I tore my UCL it was a little painful to, to rotate my arm, but that was just from the trauma of, you know, tearing that UCL. Um, but with the, when I broke my arm, uh, right when I was about to throw it, I mean, if you've seen the video, the ball goes behind Grigic's head, way behind him. Um, so I, right when I was basically talked and ready to throw, I felt just a, like a crack hmm. uh, right, right in my arm, and it just felt really unstable. And it didn't really, it was painful, but it wasn't terrible pain. I, I panicked more or less than anything. Hmm. That's kind of why I went to my knees. I was just like, had a panic attack. Um, and then, uh, you know, once the adrenaline wore off, uh, the pain was pretty bad. I, I couldn't move it. I couldn't uh, do anything to it. So, yeah, the the pain was a lot worse with the, the broken arm than the Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially this last one, like you said, yeah. having kind of a panic attack. Yeah, um, I can understand why, uh, just with all the things you've been through. What yeah. what role does the, I guess, like baseball community, like teammates, guys that have had the injury before, what role do they play in helping you, kind of immediately after the the injury? Yeah, it was amazing. I'll tell you what. Um, Jeff Francoeur came in while I was right after, um, right after I was getting my arm looked at and before they even knew it was wrong. And, and Fritchie kind of just stood there with me and, and kind of was just like, it's going to be all right, man, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, just and Nick Markakis and AJ, you know, all those the big-name guys came in during the game um, and just kind of gave me a pat on the head and just said, you know, it'll be okay. Like, um, So that, that was pretty – pretty amazing um you know i I guess they could all kind of everybody could tell that they you know i was in pain and everybody said that they hurt for me um 
but so that kind of helped me get through things. And, you know, like I said, not many people have had a medial epicondyl fracture. Um, so there's not many people that I can go to be like, Oh, what happened? Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, and this, whereas the Tommy John, I mean, half the team has gone through Tommy John surgery. So, um, that was a little easier where I can just be like, well, what did you do here? What did, you know, so, uh-huh. um, it's going to be a test in that sense that not many people have gone through it. Speaking of, uh, AJ, uh, he, your first pitch ever, he dropped the, and it hit the umpire. Uh, it's a pretty funny video. Uh, and there was actually like a delay in the game last, yep. uh, last September. So what was, what was going through your head? Uh, you know, your first pitch, there's like a, yeah. uh, you know, a couple minute delay right after cause it hit the empire. Yeah. I mean, AJ swears it, it like cut 20 <laughs> feet. I mean, I go back and look at the replay. I was like, dude, it's a strike. <laughs> and so, you know, I gave him some crap for that. Um, but you know, I, I, right when it happened, uh, Andrelton Simmons came over to me and I'm like, dude, this only happens to me. Like first pitch in my major league career knocks out the umpire, breaks the shin guard, <laughs> and there's a five minute delay. Yeah. And you know, so we all had a pretty good laugh at that. But it kind of was. It helped me a little bit. You know, at first I was kind of like, gosh, you know, I was getting a little stressed out. But it kind of let me settle settle in and kind of laugh about it, and uh, you know, give me a good laugh and kind of relax me a little bit. So mm-hmm. in a weird way, it kind of helped me out. Well, uh, Paul and I have on the uh, podcast have been reading this book called The Arm. It's about pitcher yep. injuries. Have you heard of it before? Yeah, I have. I actually talked to one of my buddies about it last night. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot about it. Okay. And so the book talks a lot about re- uh, recovering from Tommy John surgery and just the grueling nature of that and how hard it is. Um, so you know, you went through it before 2014 and 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with that assessment that it is terrible? And then I guess just walk us through what that process was like. Um, I wouldn't say that it's terrible. I mean, uh, I, I always, I think the worst part about it is, um, you know, you're away from your team, you're away from, you can't pitch, you can't, you know, it's more like a mental struggle, um, because you're, you do this thing for a living and, um, all of a sudden, it's just like taken away from you, you know, mm-hmm. and I've never been, I, until then I'd never been on a DL. I'd never missed a start and never anything like that. So, um, it, it was hard in that sense, but you know, it, it, grueling wise, the first couple of weeks is hard because you've getting that range of motion and it's pretty painful because you just have to grit your teeth and kind of just get that extra five degrees, you know, every day or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, you know, but I had a good group of guys, um, and and that's all. It's, that's all everybody was like telling me um, is if you have a good group of guys to rehab with, uh, everything goes smoother. And and I was in good hands down in Orlando last year, um, and you know we kind of we kind of kept things loose and and just didn't really think about what our situation was at the time. Um, so. It, it it was grueling, but there's always worse things, I guess you can say. So. Yeah. Who? Uh, I'm just curious. Who were some of those guys that you uh, went through the process with? Anyone that? Yeah, I, would um, know of? I don't. Yeah, probably not. Shay Simmons is one of them. He's kind of like uh, 
he's a younger guy like me. Um, Chris Withrow is another guy. A, a lot of relievers, a lot of relief um, pitchers. Okay. Um, and then Bronson Arroyo was down there for a little bit nice. uh, for like a, a month. So <laughs> it was cool to be around him and, um, you know, just talk to him. And he was an awesome guy and he can jam on the guitars. So um, that was pretty cool to have <laughs> guitar sessions with him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what uh, what role does like your love for baseball play in in recovery? Like what, or I guess what what other things motivate you to get back to pitching again? Yeah, you know, um, like you said, the love for the game, and you know, I I play a game for a living, and you know, a lot of times when you're in August or in July and you're 120 games in, and it's just day by day by day, you kind of lose side of that and mm-hmm. it's kind of like oh grueling you know like you, you haven't had an off day in 30 30 days and it's like this sucks but mm-hmm. you know getting away from it you you see how lucky and blessed that we are to to be in this position and uh you know your love for the game kind of comes back and and you know it's funny being in spring training this year i remember just like and even the first couple, the week that I was in the big leagues, I just was like, man, I got to take this in because mm-hmm. you never know if it's going to end because, you know, it's, it's pain. And, um, it's like you're in the big leagues. The thing that you've dreamed of since you're a little kid. And, and I just, I was pitching against the St. Louis Cardinals, my, my team growing up. And, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. I was just trying to take it all in and, and, and like you said, the love for the game definitely motivates me to, to get back and, and just be back on that mound and um, striking guys out, you know? So um, that feeling of, uh, you know, getting out of the big jam and the mm-hmm. crowd going pretty crazy for that. So those are, those are some things that help motivate me. And, um, you know, I, I just try to take, take things day by day because, when I try to look down the road, it kind of stresses me out. So I just try to take things day by day. Yeah. Uh, speaking of striking guys out, uh, our listeners should know that you were a, a really dominant minor league pitcher. Uh, <laughs> did you know in 2013 you led all the minors in strikeouts? Yeah, I did know that. Um, that, that was pretty cool, actually. I, I was, at the time, I was, um, people are, well, I was in Tulsa and our, um, radio announcer at the time told me that I was in the lead and I had one game to go and I was like keeping an eye on it pretty close because <laughs> I thought that would be pretty cool to, to to tell people so yeah 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 and I guess just looking at the stats here uh in 429 minor league innings you struck out 447 so that's awesome uh does yeah. that does that success that you had in the minors uh does that uh, make you confident that you can get major league hitters out yeah, you know, um, the success of the minor leagues was, was a big thing for me. And I, I think it's more, for me, it wasn't like I really, because um, I've always been a guy, of, I, I went to junior college, I went to D1, and then I, I worked my way up. So I was never really like a big prospect. I never really threw hard. Um, but I always pretty well put up the results. Um, and it was always about the mental side for me. And it was always like... Um, you know, taking pitch by pitch and um, getting my strikeout. That was one thing, too, because I, I knew that strikeouts, um, people open their eyes to strikeouts. So mm-hmm. um, 
you know, the success in the minor leagues always, I always felt like I should have been in the big leagues. And before I got hurt, um, I was probably like two starts away from, I, I was two starts away from getting called up, um, mm. in 2014. So, um, just, just knowing that, that I was that close helped me, um, through the rehab and, and knowing that I, I can be a big leaguer and I can get big league hitters out. And then, you know, going through last year, um, I, you know, when I was in New York, uh, I struck out a couple guys and then I gave up a couple home runs the next game. So I kind of, I felt the, the high and the low of, of both. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, going into spring training, I had a pretty good spring training and I had a good first week before I got hurt here. So, um, you know, I know that I can compete here and I know that, uh, I, I should, I, I can get out up here. Let's just say that. Um, mm-hmm. so my minor league success does definitely helps me, um, have confidence that I can get big league hitters out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the minors, uh, you played for some pretty great, uh, team names, the yeah. Casper, yeah. Casper ghosts, Asheville tourists, yeah. Modesto nuts, Tulsa drillers, <laughs> Uh, what was your what was your personal favorite? Um, the Modesto Nuts because it's kind of it's a weird who who names their mascot the Nuts, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's in Modesto and I guess uh, the big walnut and almond farmers <laughs> around there, so they they named it the Nuts. Nice. So that's that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, just looking back over the past couple of years, you've had a, a pretty big roller coaster. Uh, Two yeah. two really bad arm injuries, but you also made your major league debut and yeah. had to experience an opening day with the team. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess just as you reflect back on those years, what uh, what kind of stands out to you? Yeah, you know, I mean the the major league debut will, will obviously forever stand out, and then um, making the opening day roster, and then actually getting the pitch in opening day and striking out the side. Um, you know, those are, those are things that, uh, nobody can ever take away from me. And, um, like, uh, like, you know, Grilly was Jason Grilly and I, um, have talked a lot along this, this, um, injury because he's a guy that's been through the ups and downs and he's had a knee surgery, the Achilles, um, he's had, uh, screw in his arm, um, uh, just like me. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just talking to him about things, he's, you know, we were talking one day and he's like, Wink, you, uh, you're a major leaguer. He's like, nobody can ever take you away from that. Hmm. Take that away from you. Um, and so that, that kind of hit me pretty hard. And it's like forever I can say that I, I, I'm a major league pitcher. Um, so I, I will absolutely take away, um, those good moments and, uh, you know, the, the rehab and, and everything like that, that's only made me stronger. So, mm-hmm. uh, I wish I didn't have to go through it, but God has a plan for me. And, um, it's just, you know, it's a greater plan than I could ever think of. So, uh, you know, I just got to trust it and I got to know that, that this is benefiting me in some way possible. And, and it has, you know, the Tommy John rehab, it, it gave me time uh, to be around the big league guys and it, and it wasn't just a huge culture shock for me, you know? So it was like mm-hmm. most guys go, if I would have gone from double A to the big leagues, it'd have been like, Holy cow, you know, like, like mm-hmm. this is a culture shock for me. Um, you know, I kind of gradually got into it and got to be around some big league guys and got to know the, the manager and the pitching coach and 
the GM and, you know, I got to know those guys and gradually work into it. So there mm-hmm. are a lot of good things that you could take from the rehab. Um, so hopefully, you know, this rehab, I, I kind of believe that there's going to be good things that come from it as well. Yeah. And I guess the, the last thing I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned like faith and how God, his plan is, is bigger than ours. Uh, mm-hmm. For some guys, injuries like this would drive, drive them away from God. How, yeah. how has it, you know, it's almost seemed like you've gotten closer or depended on him more throughout, through these injuries. Uh, just, yep. I guess, walk us through that, that spiritual journey as you've experienced these injuries. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I hope that he's not using these injuries just to bring me back to him. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, you get caught up. I, I've noticed in the big league life, you get caught up in, in the, you know, what, cars guys are driving or what those guys you know you kind of get caught up in that lifestyle yeah. and uh you know for me just being hurt kind of like it brings me back and, and it humbles me yeah mm-hmm. um and you know it's just like you're not better than anybody else um no you know he made you in his image and um you're, you're a sinful man and it just brings me back to that even playing field and mm-hmm. it's just uh you know, like I said, it's a humble journey, and um, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I always think that I'm a pretty faithful guy, but these in, through these injuries, um, I just, I just have to lean on somebody. I need, you know, and that has always helped me through this. So mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna lean on on his plan and and whatever he has in store for me, I, I'm gonna take it and just surrender. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. Well, we uh, we will be rooting for you and cheering you on from Champagne. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess you know, best of luck in recovery. You tweeted the other day that you wished uh, MTV Cribs was on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not, so I guess your recovery will be more efficient. Um, but yeah, just <laughs> yeah. just uh, just wish you nothing but the best, and uh, thanks uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, since MTV Cribs is, I guess we just have to play a lot of video games. (laughs) Get that. Yeah, well, that kind of helps the arm muscle, right? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you again. All right. Thanks again to Mr. Winkler. Uh, Really, really enjoyed uh, hearing from him. Uh, Sounds like a great. Guy, really yeah. appreciate amazing perspective. I, you know, I uh, would hope that I would have that perspective after going through two devastating injuries, but um, I, I don't think I would. It's just it's amazing that he um, remains optimistic, having gone through what he's gone through. Absolutely, yep. And like I said, we are very much rooting for him here in Champaign, and would encourage you to do the same if you're listening to this podcast. All right, so. A few things left. We'll try to go quickly here because we have uh, really taken yeah, we a lot of your time. Like, uh, hour and a half mark already. Uh, yeah, it's tough to say without uh, editing it at first. But all right, first up we have say my name. Say my name. Say my name. All right, I'll be quick here. The name this week is in honor of Prince, the music legend who died earlier this week. Pete, can you see where I'm going with this? Prince Fielder. That's correct. And I feel like he is a name that we've grown accustomed to. 
it's become kind of normal. Was Prince his real name? Yes, but then like uh, for our grandkids, looking back eighty years from now, they're gonna say, not only is his first name Prince, but his last name is Fielder. Mm-hmm. So a pretty awesome baseball name. Um, yes. So he was named. His parents did name him after Prince the musician. Really? Didn't yep. know that. Um, a couple fun facts about Prince. When he was Prince Fielder, that is, when he was twelve, uh, he hit a home run in Old Tiger Stadium. Mm-hmm. His dad was a player for the Tigers, which is pretty amazing. And we will tweet out a picture of him when he was twelve. Uh, pretty funny-looking twelve-year-old. Um, also, uh, he is two hundred seventy-five pounds and was featured on the cover of ESPN The Body's Issue in two thousand fourteen, uh, naked. Will we tweet out that picture as well? We will not tweet out that picture. You don't obviously you don't see anything. Um, you don't, you don't, you don't see anything, but, uh, it is pretty startling to see him on the cover of the issue. So those are the two fun facts. He did win a comeback player of the year last year. So he's kind of had a resurgence in the last year and a half, but uh Prince Fielder. He had a bad relationship with his dad, right? Yeah. They were estranged. His mom and his dad. Are they had, still estranged? I believe so. His mom and dad got a divorce in 2004 and, uh, there were some money issues where Prince, uh, accused uh, Cecil of like stealing some of his signing bonus. So it's just some, hmm. some weird stuff going on with his dad there. Um, he was also a vegetarian for three months. Um, couldn't last. Couldn't last. So Prince Fielder is your name. Nelly could give him advice maybe. Yeah. Who would have thought a foot in the box is talking about Nelly and Prince in the same podcast. There you go. All right. Uh, my Yahoo answer of the week. Uh, question comes from anonymous. Another Yahoo user that uh, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the question is, what is the record for most strikeouts in a row in a game? And the subtitle is, because Smoltz has seven in a row right now. So someone uh, was watching. Looking for real-time feedback. Yeah, Twitter would have been a, a helpful thing back then. Based on my research, by the way, uh, I think this happened on August 24th, 2009. Actually, I know it happened because that's the only time Smoltz struck out seven in a row. So unless this guy was just lying. Uh, August 24th, 2009, Smoltz was 42 and pitching for the Cardinals. I never knew that he pitched for the Cardinals. Yeah, I forgot about that too. Uh, it was the first start he had made with the Cardinals. Uh, he went five scoreless innings. Uh, and the rest of the season, he made seven starts, 4.26 ERA. Previously that season, he was with the Red Sox and was terrible. Actually put him on waivers, and that's how the Cardinals got him. Um, He had an 8.33 ERA in eight starts with the Red Sox that year. He made one appearance for the Cardinals in the playoffs that year. They were swept, um, I believe, by the Dodgers in 2009. Anyway, the answer to what's the record for most strikeouts in a row in a game is 10 by Tom Seaver. And that answer comes from Bert Wiedenmere. Long last name, uh, Bert W. And he links to a box score on Baseball Reference and says, In this game above that I linked to on April 22nd, 1970, so actually just a few days ago, anniversary. Um, so on that date, in 1970, at Shea Stadium, Tom Seaver struck out 19 Padres, including the last 10 men of the game. It was a weekday afternoon game. We cut school to go there that afternoon. It was about three weeks before I graduated college. That's one of the Mets games I, I went to that I remember like it was yesterday. 
So thanks, Bert W., for that memory. Very helpful answer. Very helpful. Mike uh, also chimed in. He says, The record for strikeouts at the beginning of a game is eight by Jim Deshays of the Houston Astros in September of 1986. Now Cubs broadcaster. Now Cubs broadcaster. 1986 is also the same season as Roger Clemens' 20 strikeouts. So just a lot of things coming full circle on this week's podcast. All right, so that does it for Yahoo Answer of the Week. Next up, pick your team. Uh, Paul, we're both doing very well this year. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, pick your team. Very simple. Paul and I each pick a team to have play for us the next week. Uh, there's 26 uh, weeks in the baseball season, so a few weeks we're going to have to pick multiple teams. But after we pick a team, we cannot pick them again. Um, and the loser at the end of the season has to record uh, himself singing better up to intro a podcast. So last week I picked the Mets, who went five and one. Paul, you had the Cubs, and they went five and two. A record so far this year. Paul, you're eleven and six, and I am twelve and six. So I'm just a half game up. Yeah. So who uh, who you got this week? It's time. I'm going with the White Sox. <laughs> Sale's going to get two stars this week, and uh, they're pretty hot right now, so I'll go White Sox. All right. I am going to go with the Rangers, who actually were just beat a couple games by the White Sox. Swept by the Sox. Questionable choice. Yes, but they play the Yankees and the Angels this week at home. Yankees are struggling, and the Rangers are 6-3 and at home this year. So I'm taking the Rangers. All right. Well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes if you don't already. Make sure to leave us a review there. really helps the podcast if you do that. You can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. And check us out online at afootinthebox.com. You can find old podcast episodes there along with Paul's very controversial weekly column. <laughs> uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, criticism thus far. This past week for... Uh, just factual inaccuracies. You yes. said Wainwright had one with Cy Young, and then two weeks ago you uh, failed to include Fernando Valenzuela. Correct. When you should have. I appreciate the feedback, though. Are you going to, right now, will you admit that Fernando Valenzuela should have been an honorable mention in the article? Oh, sure. I, I feel like, I, didn't I mention that last week? No, you doubled down. You said no. Yeah, I mean, by statistical measures, no, but by the fact that he won Cy Young and MVP, uh, yes. Okay. So hopefully that appeases the uh, the angry mob. All right. Well, that is it for th- this week's podcast. To Curious Out, uh, very funny clip. Chip Carey, we had mentioned him earlier, uh, still a broadcaster. And unfortunately, one of his most memorable clips uh, post-Cubs was uh, when he was doing the baseball playoffs for TBS in 2009. You've probably heard it on the radio before, uh, but he uh, – he butchers a very uh, important play in, in a playoff game in 2009. So after Paul does his thing, we'll play that, and then I'll link to it in the podcast episode page if you want to watch the highlight. It's been a long one. Thanks for listening to it, and uh, just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. Full of ball players. No one's more of a reflection than that than Nick Puto. Have won the division four times since 2002. Line drive, base hit. Caught out there, runner tags. Here he comes, throw the plate, on target, and in time. A double play ends the tenth.
the ledger.